The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'll be here tonight and then also um, a week from tonight. I'm going to give a talk on Buddhist psychology uh, as it relates to mindfulness practice. And then next week will be a chance to go deeper into this this offering. So I'm going to hand out a um, a piece of paper that goes with this talk, and you can uh, use it or not. So we'll take two in that direction, two piles. And here. Things are fanned out. So what's coming around is a diagram um, that I use for myself to keep track of uh, some of the teachings that I received when I was in Burma. It probably won't quite focus until it's all the way uh, passed out, but that's okay. And then I sat with two very great teachers when I was in Burma and then came back to the States and I did another uh, long period of practice and sat with many teachers that were passing through the center in Massachusetts. And many of them had many brilliant things to say, but this is sort of what, um, what I distilled out of that and how I practice and um, how I've been uh, recommending other people approach their practice of mindfulness. <clears throat> and as I can already see, it's actually a, also a good fan. <laughs> so it can be a fan, it can be a map to your ultimate freedom, of your suffering, it can end the suffering of the heat in the room by a small degree. So <clears throat> this talk is loosely organized around the four foundations of mindfulness, If you look at this side of the map that has the three bigger circles on it, you see there's an M, an E, and a plus minus. And these are the first three of the four foundations of mindfulness. So mindfulness is the ability to bring your attention consciously to the flow of present time experience. You can do the sound, you can do that with body sensations. You can rest in the middle of body sensations and sound and thoughts and sights but it's a present time experience and you're aware of what's happening moment by moment. But there are so many things happening in a moment. So this is uh, growing your capacity to rest in the moment and then <clears throat> build that capacity so that you have a deeper connection to any one moment and you broaden it so that there are more moments you can be present for without being distracted or um, uh, overly reactive to what's happening. So the first place we begin is in this E, in the experience you're having. And sometimes the E for me is a very broad interpretation. So I might be having a Thanksgiving meal with my family. That's a very large E, that's a very large experience with lots of sights and sounds and emotions and memories and plans for the future. But when you bring your attention carefully into the present, you can see that uh, Every experience you're having is made up of smaller experiences. So again, that Thanksgiving meal, there's a lot of sights and sounds, there's a lot of tastes and smells, interactions with different people at the table. 
So tuning in, you can see that there are many things happening in one larger experience. So this is where we begin mindfulness practice for many of us is the ability to bring our attention to the direct experience we're having. Try to land on something. And the first place that we're recommended landing is somewhere in the body to feel your body, feel yourself breathing, feel your legs, feel your torso, feel your arms, your hands. It gives you a basis. Like I said, you can't hear anything in the past. You can't hear anything in the future. If you're hearing a sound, it's happening now. Same thing with the body. You can't feel things from the past. You can't feel things from the future. You can only feel things as they occur in the present moment. So grounding yourself in feeling present time experiences. One thing you notice is that they're constantly in flux. There's no sensation that lasts all that long. You might have many similar sensations arising and passing, but uh, they are arising and passing. So no one sensation lasts that long. They're all arising and passing very quickly and changing. In the four foundations of mindfulness, bring your attention to the direct experience you're having, the tangible experience is where we begin. Next is recommended to see if that experience you're having is overall pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So this is the second circle with the plus minus, the plus being pleasant, the minus being unpleasant. And the way our nervous system is wired, we're constantly giving ourselves feedback, feedback about experience. And if it's pleasant, there's a strengthening of your uh, association with that in terms of it being pleasant. Just so you begin categorizing what's pleasant experiences what you want more of. And then you begin categorizing what's unpleasant experience and what you want less of. And neutral experiences, we tend to just neglect them. Neutral experiences, we tend to space out and put our attention on seeking something more pleasant or avoiding something unpleasant. So even though we have a lot of neutral experiences, our automatic pilot kicks in and we don't invest that much in neutral experiences. We find them kind of boring But this is also happening in every moment. Every moment there's some quality of it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the third place you can bring your attention is in what's happening in your mind and heart in every moment. So the heart is usually the range of emotions that are passing through, whether you're feeling calm and content and happy, whether you're feeling irritated, frustrated, sad, elated, um, joyful. So many, many types of emotion are passing through us. Maybe sometimes it's fairly calm waters and then other times stronger emotions can pass through. And then you have qualities that we associate with the mind. And the mind is uh, how clear your knowing is in any moment, whether it's focused or whether it's scattered whether your mind feels fairly calm or if you feel it's agitation, whether you're multitasking, keeping track of a lot of information, or being able to rest your attention mostly in one spot. So this is another place you can bring your attention moment by moment and watch this happen. All three of these are direct experiences. All three of these you can find directly in the moment, every moment. They're not happening somewhere else. 
they may be generated by something somewhere else, but the experience is here and now in every moment. The mind is always changing, emotions are always changing, the experience you're having is always changing, and then the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality is also always changing. And what, we, what the Buddha found, or at least what he maybe uh, clearly described, is that whether we know it or not, we're actually uh, drawn towards trying to have as many pleasant experiences as possible. And we're trying to reduce the unpleasant experiences. And we get, begin to sort of uh, neglect or uh, ignore neutral experiences. <clears throat> and that's not a bad way to be happy. That's not a bad way to try to seek your happiness and spend your time on the planet. But if you can only draw your happiness and contentment during the moments you're having a pleasant experience or an anticipation, it's a very limited strategy because pleasant experiences can't last. They're, you can, they visit you, but they can't actually last. I got to learn this when um, I was in Burma and my father sent me a care package. And one of the things he sent me was a one pound bag of M&Ms. I hadn't had American chocolate in a while. <clears throat> and my first thought was, um, so many M&Ms, so much uh, possibility for generosity. So that was a very pleasant thought. And I imagined you know, going through the monastery like Santa Claus and giving everybody M&Ms. <clears throat> and that, uh, that gave way rather quickly to greed. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll give myself one M&M a day. And that's how I'll maximize my pleasure around this gift from my dad. <clears throat> and then I ate the first M&M. And it definitely was pleasant. So the Buddha said this, there actually is pleasure in samsara. There is definitely pleasure. But as it began to fade... The, the glance I gave at the bag was very different. The first one I was like, oh, generosity, one a day, you know, spread this out. I know how to maximize the joy of all this. But I ate that first M&M and very quickly the flavor stayed, but the pleasantness of it began to fade. And it was just sort of this little film in my mouth and I could taste it, but the, it was dwindling. And I glanced at that bag and it was a much more kind of a grasping, I want another hit. I want, okay, two a day. <laughs> I'm just establishing the rhythm here, you know, so I have to be a little flexible on day one of how many M&Ms I give myself. <clears throat> Reached in the bag and got another one, and it wasn't as pleasant as the first. The first one was amazing because I hadn't had M&Ms in a long time. The second one was just an M&M. I already had one, so it wasn't quite as pleasant. So I needed a couple of them to jack up the pleasure I was having and then I got started getting caught in this whole relationship. And I was like, okay, this is a trap. This is a, this is a trap. I didn't come to Burma to free my mind and get caught in a small bag of M&Ms, so I put it aside. But I knew where I hit it, so that didn't work. And then uh, I got into this thing where I was kind of doing walking meditation and I was thinking about these M&Ms, like, this is actually kind of a burden. Like, how do you manage the chocolate in your room and you manage your relationship to it? And I began eating more of them throughout the day. And they really, I, I couldn't stop myself from eating them. It was sort of a, this oppressive longing for them. But they weren't that pleasant. There was like a little spike of sugar, a little association with the actual chocolate. 
but the pleasure actually faded. And I was, I was, it was actually a great learning for me to watch how much, uh, how little pleasure there was in the bag of M&Ms. There's a lot of pleasure in the anticipation of it. Maybe eat them all very quickly, but um, that strategy of trying to be happy and elated through chocolate um, collapsed. <laughs> and <clears throat> I've been, I was able to expand upon that and see that a lot of the pleasures that I seek in life are wonderful when they're happening. They're not often as great as I anticipate they're going to be. And then they fade fairly quickly. One time I was driving across the country and I was looking forward to my first sunset over the Pacific Ocean because I grew up on the Atlantic. I got there in perfect time and got to this nice bluff and I was watching the sunset. And it was beautiful, but it wasn't as beautiful as, as I had been expected, as I'd seen in the postcards. It wasn't quite purple or pink enough. And I found myself, it was pleasant, but it wasn't as pleasant as I hoped to. And actually, there was a little bit of suffering over that, some sort of like, oh, if it would only just be a little more. And I was like, why? You know, what was I getting wrapped up into in seeking happiness or something around the pleasant sensations of a sunset? So, <clears throat> as we'll see on the flip side, there actually is a way that we can suffer around pleasure. And there's a way we can suffer around pain. We can even suffer around neutral experiences, get agitated by it, have discontent come up. Um, But there are also ways that we can use these same experiences to liberate ourselves, to be free. And that's really where the fourth foundation of mindfulness comes in. So the first three foundations of mindfulness are looking at your direct experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, And then what's going on in your heart and your mind, moment by moment? And if you do just that much, you can actually calm your mind down a lot. So there's a lot of benefit in just learning how to be present with your experience. There's a lot of understanding that can come just by knowing uh, when you're calm and knowing when you're angry or fearful and making little adjustments as you need to. But what's shown on the flip side is really uh, a lot more about how we set ourselves up for a life that feels very caught and frustrated, yet we don't know our way out of it, or one where we have uh, uh, long periods where life is not frustrating us, no matter what's happening, where we actually can take a great range of life experience, and we don't find that we actually go into suffering around it, even if it's unpleasant. And so this is really... uh, uh, the Buddha's insight into what causes our freedom, what causes our happiness, deep happiness, that's unconditional. It's not conditioned on having M&Ms. It's not conditioned on the perfect sunset. You can have a, a wide range of experiences, but you don't have to suffer because of it. And in the same way, you can have great uh, pleasant experiences, as you might think, but actually find that you're suffering around it and, be, and you don't know why you're suffering. So this is the map that shows why we suffer and uh, why we're free, when we can be free. So in the center, you still have the, the mind, the experience, and the pleasant and unpleasant quality. But if we follow the downward oval, downward um, oval at the bottom, <clears throat> we find that you can actually struggle around anything. So you can have a pleasant experience and actually begin struggling around it. 
you would notice uh, any time that you uh, fall in love. And so that's a beautiful experience. Fall in love with a friend, maybe. Fall in love with a partner. Fall in love with a newborn child. So there's a, there's a great um, rising in the heart, opening of the heart. It's very beautiful. <clears throat> but with that comes a, often a type of how do you manage that love? How do you manage your relationship to the pleasant uh, quality that's arising? Especially maybe if it's romantic love, that's where a lot of people can begin this struggle around something very pleasant. You can also have this in relationship to struggling around food. You can have this relationship in struggling anything that's new that you've just bought that you like very much because it's uh, pleasant because it's new and then you get your first scratch or stain or it begins to age and there's a fading in that. Um, my car is a great teacher for me because it's 11 years old and <clears throat> one by one things are breaking on it. It's about that time in its life. And it gave me a lot of pleasure when I first got it because everything was new. Everything was new at the exact same time. And it's fun to drive a new car. But bit by bit, it began to break down. And every new scratch, every new dent, every new stain on it is having me having to let go of accessing the pleasure I was getting when it was a new car and everything around it was pleasant. So we can struggle over pleasant experiences. We, they're not quite pleasant enough. They don't come quickly enough. They don't last long enough. Um, they're hard to establish a relationship to. And then pleasure fades. So you have to keep fanning the pleasure to keep it going. If you're drawing your happiness out of the fact that the experience itself seems pleasant, that's, um, it's a short-term strategy for your contentment, for your well-being. You also can't stop unpleasant experiences from arising no matter what you do. Having a human body means that you're going to experience something unpleasant. Human bodies get sick. Human bodies uh, feel pain. So because you have one, you're going to experience something unpleasant at some point. And then outside, you, know, you, love, you care for people and you love them and they get sick. Sometimes people die. To uh, have a human heart, to have a human mind, no matter what you do, you're going to have to experience unpleasant experiences. And if that only makes you uncomfortable and you don't know how to relate to unpleasant experiences, then you're bound to suffer. So, the beginning of this downward cycle into suffering begins with some type of struggle. Some type of struggle with the way things are. Some type of uh, inability to meet and accept things in the moment, just as they are. If that struggle gets stronger and stronger, what happens is that the struggle becomes somewhat entrenched. If you're used to Buddhist psychology, the first uh, word struggle is often craving. We crave pleasant things, but craving can move into clinging, and that's when the craving becomes stiff. It gets entrenched. So around pleasant things, we become obsessed and lock onto them. I'll only be happy if something happens, if one thing happens, and I'll only be upset if something else happens. So you can actually entrench yourself in this struggle. If you look at why things get entrenched, where they're deeply entrenched, 
there is an underlying relationship to yourself. There's an underlying relationship to how you're holding yourself as a strategy to be happy. And you can experience this mindfully. So you're sitting there with your breath, your mind wanders. If you track where your mind wanders, it's often trying to negotiate and trying to perpetuate the sense of self you have. It's trying to understand your future and plan it. It's trying to comb through the past to try to also understand who you have been and then project that into the future. Keeping track of the things you own, keeping track of the responsibilities you have. Many of the thoughts that we're having moment by moment when our mind wanders is somewhat related to how we're organizing our sense of self. If we struggle and we get locked into that struggle, chances are we're getting locked into a struggle because it has something to do with a a felt sense of ourselves. This is what Temple likes. This is what Temple doesn't like. How can I make sure Temple doesn't have these set of experiences? How can I give him more chance to have those experiences? And if that has come from some type of deep struggle, that sense of self I have will also feel somewhat tight. Is this making sense? Yeah. If and when I become rigid about myself, so this is my car, this is my house, Uh oh, my landlord might have to sell my house. We got this um, uh, email from her, our landlord, that she's, that the, the economic conditions in the country have actually started to affect her and she might have to foreclose her house. And we just moved in there in the fall And the day before I moved into the house, um, I didn't have a relationship to the house. That her house was not a part of my self story. So, but once I moved in and started changing my address on my checks and my driver's license, and this house became a part of my self story. And so the house being foreclosed upon affected me. And that brought me anxiety And so I got caught up in the anxiety she was having about whether she had to foreclose the house until I saw what was happening. And what I was able to do at this point is say, yeah, well, I'll have to move. And it may be stressful, but this house is not defining of who I am. This house uh, came late in my life. I, I had a long life before this house. I'll probably have a long life after this house. I can kind of somewhat let go of my um, entrenchment of my happiness by being bound to this house. And as I relaxed that, then I could actually talk to the landlord, talk to my housemates, and we you know, made contingency plans, and that crisis passed. But I saw what had happened was I was actually tightening my relationship to the house, trying to tighten my relationship to security. And yet, tightening my relationship to the house actually made me less secure because houses are not um, ultimate refuges. They can, they can be foreclosed upon. So that tightening that I did for security actually put me in a precarious situation, but remaining a little bit more flexible, living in the house, knowing which house is my house, having it on my uh, checks and my driver's license, but remaining a little more fluid, less rigid about my sense of self, my relationship to this house. Same with the car, my car is aging. Um, 
there have been cars I have that have suddenly died. And I didn't know the day before they died that they would die. And then I couldn't drive that car anymore. <clears throat> so if your possessions and who you want to be begin to tighten, you're actually tightening yourself into a, uh, a frustrated pattern with life. You're looking for comfort, but that tightening actually undermines your relationship to well-being. It doesn't actually secure it. It gives you short-term security, but long-term stress. And then from a rigid self, you begin to uh, um, bounce off the world. You begin to interact with the world in frustrated ways. So if I'm a rigid, if I have a rigid sense of myself and I go to meet you, all you really get is my surface. All I'll really be interacted with is your surface. It's because there's an underlying tightness. It's hard to actually interact with other people when you're locked in a sense of yourself, when you're overly locked in a sense of yourself. So this can be born uh, competitiveness, mistrust, um, justification of harm, justification of greed. So this cycle down below is charting out what the Buddha saw on his night of enlightenment is that people are trying to find happiness, but they end up getting locked in a struggle with life. And that struggle ends up being very frustrating. They're looking for comfort and security and they find themselves uncomfortable and unsecure. And so what he opened up is this uh, upward cycle. And this is a cycle of mindfulness. The first thing we do in mindfulness is we learn to receive the present moment for whatever it is, just as it is. Receive sounds, unpleasant, pleasant or neutral. Receive body sensations. Receive thoughts and emotions. You receive the experience. It's already happening. So don't fight the moment you're in. Learn to open up and receive it. It's difficult to receive pleasant, uh, unpleasant experiences. So that is a challenge. It's difficult to receive pleasant experiences just as they are. So receiving an M&M just as it is, receiving a sunset just as it is, is pleasant. But the pleasure arises and passes. And if you can be okay with that, then you can receive things just as they are, moment by moment. Later, there's room, plenty of room for a response. But the first thing we do with mindfulness is we learn to deepen our ability to receive things before we react. If you deepen the capacity to receive your moment-by-moment -moment experience, there becomes a point <clears throat> where you're receiving something like the breath. You can receive uh, difficult experiences, like maybe a loved one, dying or pain in the body and you can receive pleasant experiences as you strengthen that capacity to receive experiences and you can deepen your ability and broaden it you then open up to the second stage of intimacy a great intimacy with life and when you drop into intimacy with life um, 
any experience can be completely fascinating, can be completely enthralling. So I've had this happen. Again, maybe hard to imagine being intimate with unpleasant experiences. One time my uh, appendix almost burst and it was very painful. And I went to the hospital and luckily um, they said I wasn't going to die. So once that fear kind of passed, that amount of pain woke me up to my body. It woke me up to a greater appreciation of my body. Uh, my friends who were kind of, I hadn't seen in a while, rallied around and they came to the hospital. I met many great doctors and nurses who were very good at what they did. Um, and then I got a three-day uh, holiday in a hospital where people were cooking my food for me. I got a bed that could change angles, um, a TV. Many people coming to visit. And that unpleasant experience actually was a great wake-up call to the preciousness of life. And I noticed the same thing. I did uh, a year of hospice um, as a volunteer. And the first couple of months I was there, as much as I, up to that point, had come to terms with the fact that dying happens for everybody, when I actually walked onto the hospice ward and was surrounded by 20 people going through their dying process, it took me several months to come out of an anxiety around the fact that people were dying and what it was like to be there and to really wake up on another level to the fact that uh, death is a natural process. So I had to kind of come to terms with that. And then when I did, when I became intimate with something as unpleasant and often um, evoking of grief as, as people dying, it again brought a very beautiful, tender preciousness to life. So if I could actually sit by the bedside of someone who was dying, better that they had the company of someone caring than die alone. And that same experience that would have otherwise been unpleasant didn't become pleasant. It wasn't a joyful thing necessarily that someone was passing. But the intimacy of that moment was completely transformative. And <clears throat> uh, many people were grateful for the chance to be cared for while they were passing away. And so being intimate where things are unpleasant can actually be very opening rather than shutting down there and only running away, can we develop our heart, develop our mind to be intimate with the parts of life that are difficult? Can we be intimate with the parts of life that are pleasant, but not try to extract more pleasure from them than what they're offering? Can you enjoy things just as they are for the pleasure they have? And can we be intimate with neutral experiences most people are fairly bored with neutral experiences. I teach a lot of young people mindfulness meditation and they get really restless around neutral experiences. And many of them are used to being able to stimulate themselves so that they don't have to experience something neutral. And it's wonderful to have them for maybe several days on a retreat where they can't get the fix that they're used to and they get agitated and restless and drum and kind of get restless. And then they're like, what's going on? I was like, I don't, have to, I don't want to have this experience. Why? It's boring. It's boring. What's so bad about it? I, don't, I haven't even looked yet. It's just so bad. I don't even want to look. I'm like, well, what is so bad about sitting here in a room? Why is this so agitating? 
And there's this moment where the fever breaks and this restlessness kind of evaporates and then they feel calm. And they begin to enjoy the feeling of calm and begin to become familiar with the feeling of calm around neutral experiences. And that's very transformative. It's very transformative in our culture when you can stimulate yourself. There's so many little pleasures and distractions. What's it like to let yourself be bored? There's an experience that happened for me a lot when I was growing up. The power would go out in our house, like a good storm, grow up in New England, take the power out. And rather than it being frustrating, at first when the power would go out in the house, it'd be kind of exciting. Like, oh, power's out, and we'd light candles. And then everybody would gather around the candles and tell stories or hang out, take care of each other because the power was out. And we'd all have this notion, like, let's do this every night. Let's light candles every night and hang out. You know, it's not that stimulating, it's not that entertaining, but it's kind of wild to walk around your house with a candle and it's quiet and the neighborhood's quiet. You see other little house, you see little cans walking by. It's like, yeah, this is so much fun. Let's do this every night. Suddenly the power goes on and people are right back to the TV and they're right back trying to get back to what they were doing. So being intimate with fairly neutral experiences, recover your relationship to neutral experiences. Recover your relationship to your own body. Most of your body sensations you're fairly used to by now, which is why most of us don't have a strong relationship to our body or we have to work at it. But be in this incredible machine, that the body, even though it's not necessarily reinforcing that relationship through pleasure, be fascinated with it, even when it's feeling neutral. What's it like to feel a pulse? What's it like to feel the warmth in your hands? What's it like to take a breath in and out? And that it's not that different than the breath before, but it's still a miracle. So have us not dull out on neutral experiences. This is where you can actually drop into intimacy with life. And when intimacy gets very powerful, it almost doesn't matter what it's intimate with. You might start by being intimate in certain places with uh, children or loved ones or nature. But then you expand with mindfulness being intimate anywhere. I had this uh, happened to me once where I was teaching a retreat in Ohio for college students, giving this very same talk on um, telling people, be intimate with life, no matter what happens, be intimate, be intimate. And then the retreat ended and I was driven to the Detroit airport, dropped off, um, and I got there two minutes too late. And it was the first time I'd never um, checked in before a flight. And they sold my seat. I came in two minutes late, 43 minutes before the flight left. And in those two minutes, they'd already sold my seat. And I had a conference to go to um, that started the next day. And this kind of panic began to come over. How am I going to get there? I don't want to spend the night in Detroit, not in this airport. And of all airports, the Detroit airport, I mean, they built this a while ago. It's not that interesting. I was like, okay, well, this is what's happening. I began to try to figure it out. And, well, there's a flight I could get to Chicago and the next day get to Denver. And I'm like, okay, maybe that will work. And I got on that flight, flew to Chicago. Because of bad weather, the plane came back, put me right back in the Detroit airport. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay, well, now it's midnight. 
and to get to the flight, the next flight possible, I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and get this other flight. And it's not quite enough time to go get a hotel. So I'm just going to sleep in the meditation room at the Detroit airport, which is really just carpet. Um, that's all meditators need is just, <laughs> just carpet. <laughs> but they at least had one. So I went in there and I lay down. I fell asleep. I couldn't really sleep that much. I woke up. And it's like 2 a.m. in the Detroit airport. And <clears throat> I was kind of fuming a little bit. I was frustrated that I'd gotten on a plane and turned around. I was stuck in the Detroit airport. And sort of, my mind was kind of caught. And the thing is, I had just taught 20 college students with such passion that any moment of your life is worth your full intimacy. And I was like, ah, if I'm going to teach it, I better well do it. So I started walking around the Detroit airport at 2 o'clock in the morning. Like, okay, be intimate with the Detroit airport. And I walk around. I was like, somebody had to build this. Yeah, that, that took some effort. So I started getting some appreciation. And I saw this guy buffing the floor. He was buffing the floor. And I was like, wow, I bet he does this every night. And he just sort of very casually had a pacing to it with this buffing machine. And I saw everybody loading uh, food into the restaurants. Um, I was like, okay, well, they're, this is interesting. This is what the graveyard shift is like at the Detroit airport. But everybody's going about their business in kind of a steady pace. And then <clears throat> maybe it was a sleep deprivation or something, but I began walking around. It's like, it's beautiful in its own way, this Detroit airport. It's absolutely beautiful. And here are these guardians of the Detroit airport. It's not you know, some incredible you know, world-class airport, but they're doing their best. They're polishing the chrome in front of the restaurant. They're loading the food for the customers tomorrow. This guy's buffing the floor. And I'm the only guy walking around who's got nothing to do, so I can appreciate it all. I'm like, okay, well, this is my job. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk around and silently thank everybody for the work they're doing. And <clears throat> as I shifted my state of mind, it became beautiful and the really tall ceilings, and it's like it's almost a cathedral in its own way. It's got those massive ceilings, and it's beautiful in its own way. And being intimate with a, with a vastly neutral experience of the Detroit airport, once I let go of my frustrations, began to feel somewhat holy. It began to feel somewhat sacred. So much so that when the first people came in the morning rushing to get on the planes, like, you barbarians, <laughs> don't you get it? Somebody buffed that floor patiently for hours last night, and you're just rolling across it. You, you're not even going to thank them. You're not even like, oh, this is actually kind of beautiful. Now, where's my plane? You're just all thinking about where you want to go. Be here in this beautiful airport. And I took this sort of loyalty to the Detroit airport. And anyways, intimacy can happen anywhere. Intimacy with any part of your life when you drop through any type of resistance or preference and you open up to intimacy with what that moment is actually offering you, opens up this deep sense of well-being that isn't conditioned on the actual experience being one way or another. It's the actual power of the intimacy with the moment that makes the moment sacred. If you begin to look at what allows this intimacy to become so full-bodied is that you actually have a fluid relationship to yourself. 
You have an open relationship to yourself. You have an adaptable relationship to yourself. For me to find the hidden <coughs> sacred cathedral of the Detroit airport, I had to let go of my workshop, my preferences, all the injustices that had happened to me by them selling my ticket, my friend dropping me off too late, God for making the plane come back from uh, Chicago, all the, all the things that were agitating me. When I let that go, let go of who I wanted to be. I wanted to be temple at that conference the next day. I didn't want to be temple at 2 a.m. in the Detroit airport. When I allowed myself to open, that's when this intimacy opened. So we have here maybe a sense of a fluid self, one that's adaptable and intimate, almost like water is. You take water in a pitcher and you have five different cups in front of you, different shapes, and you pour the water in. Water will take the shape of every cup that it goes into and it will evenly touch the surface of the inside of the cup. You take a bucket of water and you put anything in it and water doesn't become hard to some surfaces, some things that it doesn't want in it and become supple to other things. Water will receive whatever you put in it, whatever shape it takes. You can take a knife and put it in water and you can take a rose and put it in water and water receives them both. That's what it's like to be a fluid, intimate being flowing through the world. And then the responses that come out of that, the responses that are come out of a tendency of adaptability, of intimacy, tend to be quite generous. And harming yourself or harming another is not really even possible when you're walking around in that sort of sacred, open intimacy. So your responses tend to be generous and they tend to be ethical, kind of naturally. So <clears throat> to have this cycle go, it takes some cultivation. We start where we can, but it begins with receiving whatever experience you find yourself in and not struggling so much. Then it, it deepens with your capacity to be intimate with the qualities of that experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. As that intimacy deepens, it opens up into something that feels quite sacred. It allows for and requires a very adaptable sense of yourself. What you would prefer happening, you can still have preferences, but clinging to them, being tight around them, doesn't help. It can actually cause the frustration with the circumstance you find yourself in. And then making room for the beautiful actions that want to come out of that, whether they're internal actions, like appreciating somebody, or actually expressing that, actually walking by somebody and complimenting them, or having a sense of generosity and acting on it, inviting your friends over to dinner, or volunteering at the, uh, the school. Letting that come out of the intimacy you have with the world, with the, your community around here, that there are uh, young kids that would really flourish with some mentoring, and there's an opportunity right here Intimacy with those kids could change your life. You're going there to serve them, but that very service could transform you. That's what I've discovered through the many years of doing socially engaged Buddhism, is that often I'm starting, I'm setting out to help someone with the free time I have, and I return quite transformed by it.
So <clears throat> this is enough for tonight. And then uh, when we come back uh, next week, we'll have a chance to talk about this more, your experience of it, um, your own views on it, your own resistances to it, if you have them. So we can have more of a dialogue next time. And there's a way to extend these. There's a way to kind of see how they grow, see how they, uh, they can grow in capacity, both any parts in the lower cycle of suffering or the parts in the upper cycle. But this is our first pass through. In the moment we have left, is there anybody with a burning question or clarification that would help them have this land further for them? So how do you become intimate with something that's extremely unpleasant? Right. Okay, it's very painful. Say you were betrayed and you were abused and things like that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there's um, the way the way you work with very difficult experiences is uh, usually it's best done um, slowly one, and then there's something called uh, pendulation, like a pendulum moves. You move towards the painful experience as as well as you can while you're still somewhat conscious of what's happening. And then if you become overwhelmed, it's skillful to back off. So if it's pain in your body, for example, you can move your attention towards that pain. And if you become overwhelmed by it, it's skillful to rest your attention elsewhere until you recover yourself some. And then when you feel somewhat recovered, you put your attention back towards the pain in your body. This happened a lot when I was doing mindfulness practice in Burma and I was sitting long hours and it was, it, my body was full of a lot of pain and I just couldn't bring my attention anymore to feel the physical pain. And there was nothing I could do about it either. So I would rest my attention on this beautiful field of grass outside my window, rest my attention there. My mind would, would gather some, I'd feel good about life. And the pain I was having didn't go away, but it wasn't dominating my experience. And then I would bring my attention back towards the pain until I got overwhelmed. And then I would bring my, move my attention back out onto the field of grass. So that's how to work with physical pain. With emotional pain or in very difficult relationships, if it it's possible if you're in a currently, if it, the circumstances you're in right now is really difficult, you might need to back away so that you can become more intimate with what's going on. It's possible that it could be overwhelming. And if your circumstance is overwhelming, you will get caught in a struggle and you will try to defend yourself. So we, we have this downward, uh, this lower cycle for a reason. It's protective it just tends not to give us a, a long-term solution. It tends to be a short-term solution to struggle, to give uh, boundaries and barriers to what's happening. But then you have to go back in at some point and open up to whatever is happening, whenever that feels safe enough to do that. So you might start, if you're, you mentioned maybe where there was abuse, you might not start with actually trying to encounter the person that uh, cause the abuse. It may be something that you work out with yourself, with a friend or a therapist, where you 
begin to open up to whatever happened to the degree that that's skillful. And you're where the, you might have had a very locked uh, barrier in your mind or a sense of being numb, because that's common. People will go numb or they'll go stiff in order to break the intimacy with what's too painful. But then you walk around with a sense of this pain being trapped in you. You've stabilized it, but you've also somewhat trapped it. And then you're walking around with it. Many people have gone in again to try to open that up skillfully. And you open it up by coming back in to contact with it as long as you can remain intimate with maybe the surface of it. And then you get overwhelmed and you put your attention back away from that, back to where you find yourself restored or refreshed or renewed, grounded. Take a breath, then come back in and touch it again. And you might do this many times, going back and forth with as much intimacy as you can sustain yourself with before you get overwhelmed and then back off again. And it's sort of coming into it and backing off, coming into it and backing off, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, or uh, mental pain, um, is the way that you build a relationship to it over time so you're not just running from it nor drowning in it, but you actually can increase your capacity to have a wise relationship to what's very painful. So touching it and backing off, touching it and backing off until you find the right balance, the right intimate balance with um, whatever that source of pain is. And then there's plenty of room for response here. If I, uh, if I step on something sharp, I'll definitely not just uh, ignore it or feel the pain. I'll try to heal that, you know, that wound in my foot if I'm having a difficult relationship with someone that I live with or in my family, um, there's plenty of room for response, for wise conversation. But I'm more likely to have a productive conversation if I can be intimate with what's going on for me, the emotions that are arising, the ideas that are arising, the tension in my body. I'm more likely to have a productive conversation if I've first become intimate with what's going on with, my, with me before I try to problem solve. That's a great question. That's some of what we can explore uh, a week from now. We can come back in and really look at this and uh, test it against actual experiences in all of our lives and see if it holds water. So thanks for that question. And I hope to see you all next week. <laughs>